Hello. Hello. Hello, Dr. Donald W. Schaffner. <laughs> Dr. Benjamin, I forget your middle J- initial Chapman. J. Chapman. J. Yeah, J. like Jam Master J. Uh-huh. He's from the uh, famous uh, Run DMC. Um, passed away recently. He was, a, he was their DJ. Huh, about Jam, that. Jam Master. I don't know how recently. So you go by BJ, huh? Ah, <laughs> that's a different kind of podcast, my friend. Um, I, I just prefer to be Jam Master J. Um, I, I have been... Uh, <clears throat> You know, you know how I like the uh, the, the rap music, the hip hop. Uh huh. I know that. You I know, know that about you. I uh, I've been listening to uh, a lot of West Coast recently. I'm I'm uh, I switch coasts. Huh. So you're bi coastal, is I'm, what you say? I'm bi coastal. What, what you mean? Yeah, I'm totally bi coastal. I uh, been listening to a lot of Dr. Dre. He's you might know him from his uh, thesis defense. On, <laughs> it was recent recent defense on the history of. Uh, um, I'm not. I'm not sure. Something maybe Com- <laughs> Compton-related food safety scares. About that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, so I've been. Yeah, I've been. I've been. I've been dabbling on the West Coast uh, recently. Jack. Jack is H uh, as he listens to this. <laughs> He'll. Uh, Jack, you should just just Google West Coast uh, hip hop. Uh, there's a there's a really nice Wikipedia page on it. Um. Hey, That's what's good. what what's up with you? What's, what's I'm just I'm just I'm trying to think if I've been listening to any music lately, and I don't I don't think I have. I think it's just mostly um, podcasts that I've been listening to. So, well, our West Coast podcasts, East Coast podcasts. Um, my, I would say my podcasts. I I I like to spread my podcast listening around both coasts. So I would say, um, and the South. Uh, so I would say the people I listen to are West Coast, East Coast, and uh, Texas. And Texas in the yep. in the Texas uh, the uh, Red Dirt podcasts, as it's known. Red Dirt is a that's a type of country music that I think is from North Texas. Huh. Something is like Austin, North Texas? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know my Texas geography. Red dirt country. <laughs> Let's Google that. Where I think it is. It is a separate. Yeah. It, it is. Um, oh, it's a, it's Oklahoma. It's a music genre that gets its name uh, from the color of soil found in Oklahoma. Ah, that's the that's uh, that's very North Texas, I think. Yeah, it's the northern part of Texas, over the northern border of Texas. Um, can I, so as we were talking about, um, as I was talking about uh, West Coast hip hop, hip hop, I did go to the Wikipedia page for West Coast hip hop, and it says, this is my favorite part, it is known that the five elements of hip hop culture, b-boying, beatboxing, DJ, DJing, graffiti art, and MCing, existed on the East Coast and West Coast of the United States simultaneously during the mid-70s. Did you know that? I do now, because I'm looking at that same Wikipedia page. It's incredible. I, I'm I'm all about uh, b-boying or breaking or breakdancing, and so is my son Jack. Uh huh. Although not when he's not listening to Taylor Swift. When he's not listening to Taylor Swift, um, or the Beebs, or the Beebs. he's very much into the Beebs right now. And another subgenre of uh, the internet that you may or may not be aware of, because um, I think I've talked in previous podcasts about unboxing videos youtube videos yes yes yeah. i'm a fan of the unboxing unboxing is is interesting it's different from bo- from boxing and which um, is different than beatboxing which right? is different than beatboxing um but the the boys are into a guy uh who has uh um made made his chops on uh, on the youtube mm-hmm. and his name is uh, maddie b 
Maddie B raps on on YouTube, and, and he, he's and he's an unboxer. He's not. He's oh. oh gosh, oh he's yelling in my in my ears for a second. Oh my no, goodness, he's not. He's like a Justin Bieber style um, singer. And okay, we're we're not going to link to that in show notes. No, no. But he also um, he also covers. He's like an eight year old child oh. who, who like covers Taylor Swift. Oh wow! And he okay. gets like millions and millions of hit on you hits on YouTube. Like he is drastically more famous on the internet than we are. I I hope his parents are managing his money correctly. I hope so too. So he has a song called Maddie B. Right now I'm missing you, which is featuring Brooke D, which has 31 million views on the YouTube's. 31 million. Wow, it's crazy. Anyway, so we got I, oh Justin Bieber boyfriend Maddie B's cover of that 102 million views on youtube hmm. i i can't like i don't know it's, it's out of control these these are very well these are very well produced obviously he did not do this himself it's not it might be with uh with an iphone maybe uh, <laughs> yeah. uh yeah sure he's he's uh doing a lot of uh video editing with imovie on his iphone it's mm-hmm. uh yeah but anyway he this is this is like the thing with the internet is where you can become famous by doing stuff and then become really famous and make a lot of money hmm. that's what we're trying to do here right yeah, that's right. That's why we started this podcast. Yeah, and as it's working out great so far. We had uh, well, it's it's it, you know it's we're looking for return on investment, Don. We we haven't we, we still need to invest more. Um, right. When we had uh, our our friend from uh, Southern uh, Texas, not Red Dirt Texas, uh, Dan Benjamin on a show a while ago, episode number eighty four. I'm gonna mm-hmm. I'm guessing that it's eighty four. Mm. Uh, I think it was. Um, he uh, he said something uh, cool uh, about us, like this is the only place in the world where people can come for this specific type of content. Like like yes. this is it. This is where we are the spot. Yes, um, and it, and it's eighty five. Eighty five uh, entitled yeah. "I'm the Jerky Police." <laughs> um, so yeah. So anyway, the internet internet's a good place. There's a lot of stuff, a lot of exciting stuff going on on the internet. Yes, indeed. Um, I, uh, <clears throat> I've had an interesting, an interesting week that was mm-hmm. like re- weather, a little bit of weather related stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, cause we had, uh, we had some snow here. Sorry. We had the threat of snow here, which shut everything well, down. Well, it's the same thing in North Carolina. Uh, well, snow, threat of snow, right? They're, they're the same. It's true. I should. Yeah. I don't know why. I've, I've lived in Georgia. I know. I know so, about this. So Friday, um. Our, our friends, uh, I had some friends from USDA that were going to uh, come visit, and uh, my schedule got changed, and then the threat of snow came, so we decided to reschedule, but no snow actually came, Which, but schools were closed, um, a whole bunch of stuff going on. It was, it was a mess. Um, and then I had to go to, uh, to D.C. to this, um, to a, a meeting, which I want to tell you about, and I don't mm-hmm. have the transcript yet, but I want to tell, tell you about it, uh, mm-hmm. which was... To talk to the FDA's advisory committee or advisory council on risk communication, and this is FDA like big FDA, not not just CIFSAN. This is the the drug folks and the medical device people. They have a a group that does risk communication. They have this advisory panel, mm-hmm. and um, and so I was I, I um, was this was Tuesday. Uh, 
was my talk. I left on um, Monday afternoon and had some travel delays in Charlotte and then made it there and the federal government closed down or was delayed for three hours due to snow. Anyway, I got to, to give my talk. And it's a weird. I texted you about this. Yeah. Um, and it was a weird situation. I've, something that I've never had experienced before. So um, I had a twenty minute like I've likened it to like a Senate panel here, mm-hmm. but it's really not because like I'm I'm being over dramatic. It's not like I I was sitting somewhere and I was to make a presentation and people asked me questions. It was a little bit like that, but it was in a small kind of room. Um, I had twenty minutes to talk about research that I did. And uh, I, I talked to, to the group about a paper um, that Doug and I wrote with one of my grad students, former grad students, uh, Ben Raymond, on social media in food safety. And then I t- spent 10 minutes talking to the panel about um, some research that I just submitted or we just submitted uh, last week uh, for uh, publication on um, uh, ordering undercooked hamburgers and the communication uh, between servers and patrons at a restaurant, and which, that, which, by the way, we have also talked about before on the podcast. We have, we have, yes. And so, so the that that stuff is all is all done. Um, and I got to talk to them about that servers aren't really great risk communicators. And um, so I, I did this twenty minutes. Then I went and sat in a audience while they the panel discussed whether they could use anything from the 20 minutes that i gave them (laughs) which was bizarre yep it was really really i don't know if you have you ever been in a situation like that where like people just talk about your stuff like oh well chapman said this and i think we might be able to use that but i don't agree with this part of what he said yeah, actually, it sounds it sounds very similar to uh, being on uh, NACMIF, uh, National yeah. Advisory Committee on Microbiological Criteria for Foods, or perhaps uh, being on a National Academy of Science committee. So, yeah, I have been in in situations like that uh, where, and in some cases, there is a transcript being taken. In other cases, there's not. And it is a very formal process. And, and yeah, it is kind of weird uh, for people to talk about you. And actually, it's not, it's not, it would not be too dissimilar from presenting an issue at the Conference for Food Protection where, where you present the issue and then you go sit down and you can't talk unless somebody from the committee recognizes you and, and then, and then the, or the, the council recognizes you, then the council will debate what it is that you proposed. So yeah, it's uh, so there there have been similar type things I've been involved with, but uh, but it is a little bit it is a little bit odd. It's yeah, it's totally like like you, I just want to say like hey, I'm right here, guys. Like I can hear you you're talking about me. I'm I'm over here. Um kind of kind of thing like like they're they're ta- they're they're talking in the abstract like uh like you're not you're not there. It's very formal. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not a not a formal kind of guy. Um and uh, and our friend Mike Batts, friend of the show, uh, Mike Batts was was actually viewing this uh, this thing this because he's he uh, is is part of the FDA some sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And so he was he was texting me about it and uh, and then tweeted at me on the interwebs um, that my tie was crooked because I was being broadcast throughout the FDA pipeline. Good. Well, I was. I would hope. I would hope that if if Bats was going to reach out to you during this, it would be to provide important information about the state of your tie, because uh, quite honestly, that's what really matters. It it was, and I responded to him and said, uh, "Of course I am. Of course it was, because that's my thing." 
And then he yeah, it's it's a carefully cultivated look. It, it is. It you is. Know, one does not just simply throw this look together. Yeah, and I I don't think of it as my tie being crooked. I think of it as being slanted or angled mm-hmm. purposefully. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. Yeah. Um, so so anyway, it was it, it was quite like it was quite fun to not you know to to do this uh, thing and give my perspective, and I felt like. I've told you this before. Sometimes I get into like a preachy kind of rant kind of mode um, where I'm like, you should all do this or FDA needs to do more of this. And and I even use that voice. It sounds very commanding. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I like wavered on the line, at least in my head of like, you know, FDA needs to t- pay attention to these types of things. Um, but that, you know, no one, no one kind of. Uh, called me on my uh, on my rantiness, but I didn't even realize until I saw these tweets from uh, from bats that uh, that it was being that other people were actually watching it outside of the room. Uh-huh. Cool. So, so that made it made it like, oh, I wonder how how ranty I looked. Um, well, we could we can review the transcript later. We will. We will. It's it. it I believe uh, rambling would be uh, one of the uh, words that I would use to describe it. Hmm. Uh, but the, but um, we like we talked about before. We're always uh, you know sometimes we're not we're um, our own best critic, critic, best worst whatever. Um, yeah, so I went up <laughs> went up there and did and did that stuff. Did the the risk communication and it was I'll tell you it was in, it, um so I I talked about these servers and. One of the comments that an individual on the panel made, and I don't know who it was, and we'll have to check the transcripts when they come out, but um, he said, servers, you know, we, we think about risk communicators as people like healthcare providers or public information officers and educators. But, you know, Chapman has highlighted that servers at a restaurant are really being tasked with being risk communicators, and that is like others in in our you know world and, and the individual brought up like pharmacists and nurses and so he said you know we could maybe learn something from the server stuff and apply it to other fields and i was like whoa that blew yeah. my mind that was really yeah. cool yeah. I didn't think yeah. that. you know who you know who are risk communicators ben people who communicate about risk <laughs> people who exactly and, and so they, instead of uh, yeah instead of pretending like there's only certain people that are allowed to communicate about risk realize that lots of people can communicate about risk and and that and that that they, the agency needs to use them in in their efforts right right and that they refer to them as non-traditional risk communicators and I would flip that back around, which I couldn't, because I would have pointed out if I was actually part of the um, panel discussion that I was. Uh, I'd be like, no, I think they're very, very traditional risk communicators, because much of the risk communication that is going on is in this informal, non-traditional way, in their in their mind, right? It's like it's most of the most of my conversations are not with official FDA communicators. Right, and even even by using the terminology non-traditional, they're they're setting up a certain perspective that that you would say is not true. Right, right, yeah. Right. It was it was really it was you know kind of a a, a good experience, um, and then uh, then I flew home and um, became a, a non-traditional risk communicator with my kids about uh, <laughs> about things like uh, jumping headfirst off of the couch uh, and and other other and, risky and, things. And what was your what was your opinion on that? Uh, good, good idea or bad idea? I, well, I went with the with the not so good idea. Um, f- if we were trying to avoid like neck and head and spine injuries, mm-hmm. um, and a good idea if we were looking 
for uh, wheelchairs uh, and other uh, modes of transportation for the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, but I, uh, I, as you only can with with children, or you know your own children, I was able to express my uh, risk communication through a series of um, voice raisings and. Uh, um, absolutes like if you don't stop that, you will go to bed right now. Uh, which and how does that strategy work for you? Uh, it's it's in, I have I have a lot of control in my home environment that I could um, force them to go to their rooms. It is not probably the best way to um, uh, impact someone's behavior, like say at a pool when they're not my children. Um, but I'm sure that uh, the threat of my um, sending them to bed only has a short-term uh, impact on their risk decisions. Well, I, it's good that it has some impact. Yeah, well, it's because I'd be like, just go upstairs, and I'll just yell louder. They get really, um, I, I, I like, I don't, I don't raise my voice a whole lot um, at my kids. And that when makes I, it more effective when you do. It's true when I do, and I feel myself like really getting the uh, the loudness up there. The look on their face is like, oh my gosh, we're this is serious. Whatever whatever we have done here has now uh, put dad over the edge, and uh, sometimes that's true. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so that was that was a little bit about what I uh, what I did this week. Um, I uh, and there's there's fun stuff going on. What about you? Were you were you teach you're teaching something right or you're yeah. not you're you're supposed to be teaching but you're talking to me instead. Is that true? No. Oh. <laughs> No, no. Um, I'm. Uh, I would never do that because if I have a, uh, an obligation to teach, Ben, I would certainly teach. Um, but uh, no, I've been teaching something uh, called a burn seminar, um, and that's not like burn, like ooh, I burned you good. Um, but B Y R N E, who is a, a person who left some money to Rutgers University to encourage undergrads to interact with the research faculty, and so it's a special seminar. You sign up to do it. You get some additional. Uh, uh, salary compensation, not a lot, but you get some. And uh, it's it's a, it's an interesting idea. It's only 10 weeks long. So it, it, it ends before the end of the semester. And it's basically just a one-credit class. And so I am teaching a one-credit class on food poisoning. And so I have been, you know, and, and actually we didn't, I don't think we talked about this. Um, but let me share with you the, kind of what I've been doing uh, because I, I've really been enjoying it. So uh, the first thing, thing that I, I sent to them. Actually, the, 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 you like this. The, the first, the, I gave them two reading assignments the first week. Uh, one we did in class and one um, we did, um, uh, uh, they read in advance. And the one that they read in advance was the Scallon et al. Uh, 2011 um, foodborne illnesses acquired in the United States major pathogens. Good, um, good and, talk. Good, uh, yeah. the, yep. And uh, guess what the uh, the in class handout was? It was a barf blog post by a guy named Ben Chapman from January twenty second, twenty sixteen. Because I wanted to make the connection to them that this food safety stuff is happening right now, and that was that was one something that had come out that same week. Wow, 
That's uh, that, that's fascinating. I'm famous in in uh, Rutgers in with yes, one class. In, well, yeah, I think so. I'm not sure they remember my name, so they probably for sure don't remember your name. Um, but but yeah, I mean, famous ish, let's say. Well, that's um, fantastic. Yeah, and then and then in the, the second week we talked about Salmonella puna and cucumbers, um, and also uh, I shared with them the the paper that uh, that and that's a was a CDC uh, outbreak report, and then I shared with them the work that we've been doing with in collaboration with uh, Laura Green Brown and others at CDC and SNET on uh, cooling practices in restaurants. So I shared that peer reviewed publication with them. Um, uh, week three I shared uh, the Salmonella St. Paul outbreak from um, uh, tomatoes. Oh, no, not really. Uh, actually, ah. peppers. Um, and, and, and talked about how that was complicated. Um, and then uh, this past week, I shared with them uh, uh, Monte Carlo simulations assessing the risk of salmonellosis from consumption of almonds uh, by Daniluk, Harris, and Schaffner as well as the Federal Register article on um, from the Ag Marketing Service about the California Almond Board marketing order and a four-log reduction. So, um, yeah, so I've been sort of taking it week by week and sort of figuring out what th- what we should talk about the next week based on what we talked about the first week and the questions that came up. Um, and then the assignment that I've given them uh, for next week is actually to watch the Fight Back handwashing webinar that I recorded last week and to prepare some questions on that. So I'll be very interested to see uh, how they how they deal with that. And then um, uh, next the week after that, we're going to get into talking about risk assessment and risk management. And I just finally shared with them this past week um, about because uh, some questions came up about like what's the the right uh, number of logs for a log reduction, and so I talked about risk assessment versus risk management, and I gave them a, a, an article um, uh, that was published by Cast uh, by uh, Leanne Jakus uh, and some others, including myself, on uh, risk analysis and, and food safety decisions. So, and the other thing that I've been doing with them, which I which is really fascinating, is I've given them. Um, something that I call uh, food safety observation homework. And so their job every day is to see something in their lives or some thought that occurs to them and write it down about food safety. Well, I like it. Like like in the in situ. Right. Exactly. I like that. So – that, for for example, cool. um, uh, uh, today I went to the 7-Eleven and I ordered some taquitos that are usually rolling on warm metal bars. But strangely, mine were more cold, uh, more on the cold side. Um, and I worried about whether I was going to get sick or not from that. So so that's the that's – the, and oh, and then and the student writes, this got me thinking, do those metal rolling bars have the sole purpose of maintaining a food's heat? Are they warm enough to kill bacteria, uh, et cetera, et cetera? So, so we, I've got some really good – I've got some students that kind of just show up and seem to go through the motions. But I've also got some that really are engaging with it and, and really seem to be asking some, some good questions. So, yeah, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it very much. And I'm also collecting all of these observations. Um, uh, I don't know to what purpose other than it's just I find it fascinating to see what's going through their minds about food safety. Oh, that's cool. We should do a very special uh, episode of uh, Food Safety Talk where we go through the observations. We could do that. I think we could do that. That yeah. would be that would be awesome, and then we could uh, we could talk about that. That would be some good good content. I so um, a couple of years ago. I mean, I don't know how long ago it was now, but I, I you know started this um, little 
thing on on the Instagram and Twitter on um, citizen food safety mm-hmm. to try and gather pictures of things that uh, that go on um, fi- you know in in daily life uh, around around food safety and it's I mean it kind of like fizzled out I try you mm-hmm. know I was I was trying to um, I don't know like see if something like that could work and there's still every once in a while I see some um, some hashtags and it's mainly people that are either like follow me or um, that I you know that I kind of know uh, on the internet like things like I think I got salmonella on, on my hands just looking at this picture hashtag safety <laughs> and it's a kid who's taking out uh, raw chicken uh, as he's making homemade um, uh, chicken nuggets and stuff like that. So cool. I like, yeah, it's it's a great it's a great idea. I mean, I think we see it, when when your eye is keen on food safety, you see a lot of food safety things every day, right? Like the, there's there's an impact, whether it be um, a hand washing sign or those rollers at Seven Eleven. That's that's mm-hmm. really cool. That's that's yeah. a really great um, a great teaching. Uh, um, device. Well, and in fact, I have to, and so what, and what we do then is I, as I read them, uh, and like if they have questions or if I have comments on what they've said, I, we talk about it like at the end of class as kind of a, a time filler if we, if we end early or whatever. But the problem is that they are now writing them faster than I can keep up with them. And so <laughs> I've, I've had them cut back to uh, reporting that, uh, those every other day. And hopefully at some point we'll, we will catch up. But, um, I, uh, I have to confess, this is, uh, not my, my idea. This is an idea that I stole from, uh, uh, Andrew Gelman, who's a, 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 yeah. a statistician, whose whose blog I read, and and so we'll link to his uh, blog post uh, from early January this year, and he he says um, what to do in 2015 your statistics diary, and he says the last two weeks of our class on statistical communication, I gave my students the following assignment: every day you will write an entry in your statistics diary. Uh, the diary entries can be anything; they can be sh- slice of life observations, uh, they that uh, you know uh, they can be uh, a what is it? Uh, they can be um, something you're working on, and this, these are for graduate students, so it's more like you know a research type type thing. Uh, uh, and you can write as much or as little as you want every day. Um, you just have to. You, the only requirement is you have to write something new in it every day, and you can't you can't go back uh, a week later and fill in all seven entries. You just have to just one entry a day. So anyway, um, so I stole that from Andrew Gelman, and it's a great idea, and it's working out really good. That's awesome. Yeah, that is a great idea. Oh, cool. I, so I had a classroom experience today. I don't, you know, I, I don't, I don't teach, um, a whole lot. I do, um, you know, I don't know, five or six guest lectures a year. And today was one of them. Um, I, uh, gave, uh, a lecture and had a, a discussion in a class that's like a cross-listed class on, um, biosecurity. I'm going to try and find the name of the class that would, uh, help with this. It is, um, uh, P O four eleven. I don't even know what that stands for. Anyway, the class is all about how do you, um, you know, teaching uh, individuals about how the food and agriculture industry deals with threats. Um, it's an agro. It's called agro security. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's a Twitter account. <laughs> there is a Twitter account. Which yeah. So my friend Matt Cosey. Uh, is the instructor for this class, and he and I have been on a couple of uh, different panels together, and we talk. He's he's interested. He do, works in um, 
poultry science and is a microbiologist but does not know anything about chickens. I mean, that's what he said to, to me. It's not, <laughs> not entirely true. Uh, but uh, has uh, you know come up with this class. And, and here's the, the cool – this is um, how he explained to me. Um, the first uh, third of the class is discussing – what we know about disease as it relates to food and agriculture and where disease comes from and how to control it and how to manage it. The second third is the class um, spends time, and this is where, I, or, uh, yeah, where they are now, um, it spends time devising ways to intentionally impact um, food and agriculture production. So like, Whoa. yeah, like bioterrorism type things. Like, like, so let's look for weaknesses. Let's look for uh, vulnerabilities. And then the third half of the class, they so they are third third of the class. Um, the second third, they, at the end of that, they come up with a strategy on how to attack something. And then uh, it's done in groups. Those groups get all um, uh, the outputs get shuffled around, and then. Uh, you were to design a defense against one of those attacks. Oh, cool! Uh, yeah, it's like super cool. Very so cool. yeah, so it's it's like I I love the you know the the like what the concept that that you stole from Andrew Gelman of and we're not just going to lecture and we're not going to come up with assignments that are going to judge knowledge, but let's put things into practice. Let's let's make. Let's make the classroom something that goes well beyond just our lecture time, and let's learn and interact, you know, outside. So Matt, um, Matt brought me in uh, and and said, "Look, I haven't, you know, I've told them a little bit about foodborne illness, but I haven't told them anything yet about how surveillance works, how outbreaks are investigated." Um, and any sort of like specifics. So, so I spent an hour this morning um, mm. deconstructing the Chipotle. Uh, oh, nice. Yeah, and 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 basically using those as examples of um, how active and passive surveillance happens, how outbreaks are investigated, and why we don't always know the answer and different vulnerabilities. And I I sent you a text. We you and I talked about um, uh, something. I think it was two episodes ago on um, uh, this idea of Chipotle being targeted by uh, the biotech industry, food terrorists. Yep. Um, and anyway, so the punchline of my entire talk was, and here is, you know, a thought out there that's now been shared on Facebook, uh, you know, 120,000 times that uh, uh, this these outbreaks were intentional. Um, and let's talk about how they might have been. And so by the end of it, like, you know, because I don't I mean, I, I think that they were not. But the I, by the end of the, the discussion, I think that there are two or three people who are like, um, man, maybe maybe this was intentional. And I was like, no, no, no you've missed the point. What we're looking for <laughs> is vulnerabilities. And they're like, yeah, I think there's a lot of vulnerabilities. I'm like, yes, that was the point. <laughs> so, yeah. So anyway, it was it was good. I enjoyed um, I had a good time in, in the class and just like riffing for an hour on uh, on outbreaks in Chipotle. Yeah, and, and you had sent me this link to this natural news article and I'm I'm looking at it now in all its glory and it is it is uh, glorious. And by glorious I mean truly appalling. Uh, this whole this web page apparently um, Ben uh, in your totalitarian medicine future human doctors are going to be replaced by pill pushing AI robots installed where in your toilet. That's that's where I need it. 
That's where it, well, I can't think of a better place to install a pill pushing AI robot. <laughs> well, and that's where I want my pills for the most part is from the uh, dispense from my toilet. Yep. Um, <laughs> did Did you know um, that? Uh, what the number one worst exercise for aging is? Uh, no, is it no? The pain of the butt, hemorrhoid, hairy? Uh, no, I don't. It's a it's a very very buff looking uh, gray haired man. Oh, <laughs> and if I click on the the, the his uh, his abdomen, I'm sure it will tell me the number one worst exercise for aging. Oh, uh, sorry, the internet. The inter- Did you know? And according to the internet, the biotech industry not only sells deadly glyphosate herbicide poison that destroys human health and contaminates ecosystems, it also uses its dirty money to financially influence academics, journalists, and lawmakers. Uh, they haven't given me any of their dirty money, but okay. Yeah, that's what they do. Mm. They, they take the deadly glyphosate sale and puts it, put it straight into liner in our pockets. And by our, we mean people that are not you and me. Yeah, not us. Apparently. Not us. Well, that's fine. I, look, I, I do not have a uh, FOMA, fear of missing out uh, <laughs> uh, aspect too much of this. But anyway, it was, good. it was a good discussion. And I had, like, this perfect example of, you know, there is uh, at least one individual out there who thinks that it's a, you know, corporate sabotage. But, we, I mean, so one of the things that we did talk about and we've talked about on the podcast in, in the past was this idea of um, – fallout from an outbreak and the cost and what would like if someone was to target um a, a company with foodborne illness you know with, with having an incident um what kind of impacts could they have and you know for in the in this chipotle case you look at like 30 percent, 40 percent of their uh you know the sh- stock prices dropping and and so so that was where this whole like conversation went with the class it was like oh i could see the draw on why you would want to raise, you know, focus on a, on a company and try to um, knock down their credibility because there is an impact. Although, as one of the students brought up, it seems awfully um, complicated to pick five different pathogens and spread them in in three or four different ways uh, to uh, break the credibility. It seems like you you would maybe want to do use something a little less uh, um, uh, complex. Yes, and 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 if you are a terrorist, my understanding is if you are a terrorist, you want to always, uh, at least I think, want to claim responsibility. I think so, but I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe who knows? Mm. Who knows? Um, the uh, we did get into a conversation about um, how what would be the best way to do this, and it was thought <laughs> that a um, a cocktail approach with multiple pathogens spread through the supply chain and at restaurants would would be if this is the, your uh, you know designated way to impact a business that you would probably not just use one pathogen but it would increase your odds um, so anyway it was it was good it was like I what was um, heartening about it is we had this really creative discussion that, that I, I felt like you could see the, the kids kind of learning and, and they had taken in the stuff that I had told them about um, surveillance and they're like oh so there's a lot about food safety we don't know I'm like yes that's that's right and our surveillance system although it it is increased and it's and it's pretty good it, there's still have, we have a lot of limitations uh, on figuring out what where the 
um, you know, where illnesses come from and why they occur. And so that was good. It was cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this, the, the students that I'm, uh, teaching to are freshmen. And so that is, it's particularly good because you're sort of getting them at the beginning of their career. And, and, to, and I guess that's the whole idea of these seminars, right? Is you want to take freshmen, you want to expose them to uh, faculty that do research and you want to kind of start that process that, uh, of engagement, because very often my perspective is that freshmen, in college, it's kind of like, uh, you know, grade, grade 13, right? It's high school, except, uh, you don't live with your parents and you have to get yourself to class and you can probably drink. <laughs> Don, I, so, um, little known Canadian fact for our seven Canadian listeners in Ontario, where I grew up, there actually was a grade 13 and it wasn't college and it was not college and it was mandatory. It wasn't like, if you wanted to go to college, you had to go to grade 13. It wasn't, uh, as some, uh, might call it a victory lap of high school. Whoa. Yeah, no. So I had, um, wow. Yeah. So it was, it's called the, uh, it was, it doesn't exist anymore. Huh. Uh, it was called the Ontario academic credit and it was for a short, uh, rel- you know, relatively short, a couple of gener, um, like uh, two decades, I guess, because uh, my parents didn't have it. I had it, and then it ceased uh, with uh, um, uh, Danny's little brother. He was the huh. the last year of it, or the oh, it's la- fascinating. Yeah. So anyway, uh, don't uh, disparage uh, grade thirteen. Was, hey, yeah. no, no, I, I far far be it for me to disparage uh, grade thirteen. Although I, you probably didn't see it after I after I discovered on on Facebook that I was um, uh, <laughs> when I did my uh, word cloud of of Facebook. <laughs> Uh, things and you you were featured so prominently. I've been trying to like tone it down with linking <laughs> you on stuff, but I had a I had a very interesting. Uh, I've been having very interesting discussions with um, uh, David Bacon Schaffner on Facebook, who is not a relative. He's probably a relative of mine, but I don't know how he's related to me. Um, and he he was making some uh, uh, disparaging comments about uh, Ontarians on uh, uh, um, people from Ontario. Oh my gosh! So anyway, I, I'll I will find it and share it with you. Well, there you go, there you go. And now next year when you do your word cloud, um, David Bacon Schaffner. Will... I, I'm surprised that he's not more prominently featured already. Yeah. Oh. But he mostly shares stuff with me. I I don't always share stuff with him. So. Well, there you go. Hey, it turns out I got my little history uh, wrong on this. I'm looking at grade 13. Mm-hmm. It was uh, it existed. Um, Actually, from 1921 to 1988, and then it wow. was replaced by OAC uh, in 1984, and it was phased out in 2003. Um, but um, so it uh, was not – it was only something that people would go to uh, um, if they were going on to college. Maybe that's hmm. why. Yeah, I got that, got that all wrong. Anyway, I was uh, – and it, there is uh, – Something in the Wikipedia page for the Ontario Academic Credit uh, at the bottom, it does talk about the, quote, victory lap. Hmm. Oh, hey, speaking of Ontario and disparaging people from Ontario and Mm -hmm. Baker Schaffner, I Mm -hmm. need to tell you about a show that you are going to have to – I'm going to have to get it to you because it is really difficult to find. Mm -hmm. And they're not a sponsor, but I wish they were. And it's something called Letter Kenny. Okay. Have I talked about this? Because it sounds vaguely familiar. Okay, so I might have talked about it on on a previous podcast. I've been talking to everyone about it. It is a sitcom that has six episodes created by this guy named Jared Kizo, who used to be um, a uh, hockey player. Like, I mean, he played junior hockey. Um, but uh, Letter Kenny is a 
um, it's a ghost town. It's actually a fictional town uh, in this um, uh, in this show, but it's it is Ontario. Like it is the um, the uh, typical southwestern Ontario, south, central Ontario uh, um, uh, type of uh, community. And I've watched I watched all six episodes of this. Uh, it's only available on Crave TV, which is like the Netflix of Canada. Uh-huh. And and it was uh, it was phenomenal. But I don't know if you would get it. I don't know if anybody would get it outside of Ontario. Would would get the humor. Yeah. yeah. Like like there's just like certain sayings that are so like and certain things. And so the um uh it, it starts with like I I don't have the exact term, but but there are different groups in Letterkenny uh and they are the Hicks, the Skids, uh, hockey players and and then the Christians and and then, so it's like there are these groups in Letterkenny. Here are their problems. It is um, not appropriate language for. Uh, it would definitely garner an explicit tag. But anyway, it is like if if you if if any of our listeners or if you really want to get my experience growing up in small town Ontario, this is this the is show it. for you. Okay, this is it. Um, and, uh, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. Well, and, and, you know, I mean, growing up in a small town, uh, just across the border in upstate New York, there are probably aspects of it I could identify with and other aspects that will be totally unfamiliar. Yes. Yeah. Like, like some of the sayings. Right. Um, and, and, and just the different, yeah. Like referring to cigarettes as darts and like incessantly, like let's go, let's go have a dart. Yeah. And, um, there, there's a, a term, a catchphrase as they have it, uh, which I, I've never used, but I definitely remember people using it in my hometown of pitter-patter, let's get at her, and using it all the time. <laughs> and, and it is replicated in this show. All the, you know, all the oh, time. wow. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, pretty, it's pretty phenomenal. So I don't know. I mean, it, you know, if you can find it, and I'll, I'll get it to mm-hmm. you, Don, but mm-hmm. for others, if you can find it, go ahead and watch it, and that's like... Uh, that is my current obsession. I've watched all six episodes as I was on planes and uh, traveling this week, and then I watched the first two episodes over again with Danny. And she is like, "Yeah, this is this this is like being in Ontario, but I don't find it very funny." <laughs> okay, like, well, too close to home. Too close. To home. No. So, so speaking of uh, things that that might not be funny, but that that I've been watching lately, I, have you heard about this latest uh, show from Louis C.K. called Horace and Pete? Yes, yes, yeah. I have. So, I've I've bought the first two episodes. Uh, I see that uh, I can buy the third episode. I'm not going to do it now because uh, that would destroy my bandwidth. But it's been I I found out about this because uh, John Gruber linked to it on um, um, uh, Daring Fireball. But basically, and I think I think Gruber may have described it as as a, a dystopic cheers. So it's, it's a, it's set in a bar, uh, and there's, the bar is owned by two people, Horace and Pete. Um, and this is a bar that was established in 1916 and it's always been owned by a Horace and a Pete, which is a little bit of a spoiler, um, uh, for I think episode one, but yeah, it's, um, if you like edgy humor, if you like Louis CK, it's, uh, it's quite good and it's quite unlike anything else. I mean, and I have to, um, even if I didn't like it, I would have to just really applaud Louis C.K. for his the work that he's doing to basically uh, disintermediate the entire media 
system. He's he's got enough money and enough talent now that he can just make stuff and put it on the internet and people can buy it. And it's really uh, it's it's quite it's quite phenomenal, and and it la- allows him to make shows that are really true to his vision, and don't he doesn't have to answer to anyone. He can just he can just make this and and put it out there, and it's got it's got a great cast. It's got uh, Steve Buscemi in it, which and he's just absolutely fantastic, and so I just uh, highly recommend it. I'm gonna check that out. I I, I read about this, and then you uh, sent me a message um, about it, and I love like you said, I love the. Um, disrupting the whole process of how things get made and using the internet. Like it's just, it was, no one announced it. It just appeared and here you go. I made these things and I'm going to make some more and, and no one can, no one's going to tell me what to do. Yep. Love it. Yep. Love it. Love it. Love it. Um, I, uh, I, um, I was going to tell you about something else I watched. Oh, Hey, so, um, I like, (laughs) This is going to be a total non sequitur. I really like Kanye West. <laughs> that's a, that's a, I think that's what we call a callback to the beginning of the show. It is, it is. But he was he was on uh, on Saturday Night Live this week, and I was thinking about it because Horace and Pete also has a um, guest star of Aidy Bryant, who is on Saturday Night Live. Um, and uh, I, I so I know he might not be your cup of tea. But I find his his music right now and his last like few years, it's very artsy. Hmm. Like there is there is a performance factor to it that I'm, I'm not even like I'm understating it. But to watch the Saturday Night Live performances that he did last weekend, it's I'm it's very captivating for me. It's not like I I, I really like am in in into the music. I just like the the idea of this here his his concept is this is what my music is this is what i'm making right now hmm. take it or leave it i'm a, this is this is me and i like it's like louis ck that's what you got right about. right yeah so yeah whatever you think about him he's 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 doing what he thinks is the thing to do right like yeah. this he's being true to himself yeah not that's uh that, that maybe there's a an analogy to food safety there i don't know Maybe that's what we do with barf blogs sometimes. Maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, totally. That's the, that's the that's the plan. But how but how much how much longer is barf blog going to be around? I don't know. I don't know. We got uh, we we've got uh, we got we got we're burning out. We're burning out. It's and like in anything, I mean. So we've been at it now, and I say we. I mean, eighty percent of it is Doug. Right. Um. Since two thousand and six, and uh, all things. You know, you do the same thing for for ten years, and uh, and it's probably time to to change it up or do something new. And and I mean, and that's why why I've I spend time uh, doing podcasts with you. Like it's another outlet for this for this area. And so right. yeah, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how long. Uh, we'll see how long it goes. We'll probably um, we'll probably take a break on Barf Blog for a while, and and maybe something else will happen. Maybe it won't. I don't know. Um, but. In the in the interim, Don, mm-hmm. um, what's in your Parmesan cheese? <laughs> um, what's in my Parmesan cheese? Yeah, what's in your Parmesan cheese? Uh, I cheese is all that's in my Parmesan cheese. That's what I think's in my Parmesan cheese too. Apparently, some people think there's wood in their Parmesan cheese. Yeah, and and if, including the FDA. Um, you know that's a bad. You don't want to put wood in the FDA's Parmesan cheese. No, they. I, you have no idea how many of their. Uh, investigators like uh, pasta, or pasta as I would uh, pronounce it in Ontario, uh, and uh, you don't want to you don't want to piss them off. Um, so 
Um, there's been some stuff going around the internet that I wanted to talk about. That um, a story that broke a couple of days ago about Market Pantry Parmesan cheese, which is the um, uh, Parmesan cheese that is the uh, Target private brand that uh, was produced by Castle Cheese Incorporated. And according to um, uh, Bloomberg, the, they uh, acquired some information on Freedom of Information Act that uh, back in 2012, Castle Cheese was doctoring its 100% real Parmesan cheese with cut-rate substitutes, including wood pulp and... Um, their Parmesan cheese, in, in fact, contained no Parmesan cheese. It, it was just uh, cheddar uh, instead of Romano and um, some anti-clumping agents, and, uh, and that was it. That that is that is bizarre. Um, I, I mean, I can understand like faking people out by using cheddar, but wood pulp that is. Bizarre, and it harkens back to uh, the days of Upton Sinclair in the jungle, and and people putting sawdust into um, uh, sausage. Right? I mean, this is if this is really true, and I don't have any reason to believe it's not. That's incredibly, just incredibly idiotic, and and they they deserve whatever's coming to them. That's just that's just some bad news. Yeah, it's uh, so you know according to this. Um, there are, you know, criminal charges and it's, you know, it's, it's kind of a, um, a big deal. Uh, I mean, obviously, um, and so, uh, according to FDA's report on Castle, um, no Parmesan cheese was used to manufacture the market pantry brand, hundred percent grated Parmesan cheese. Um, and uh, it was a mixture of Swiss mozzarella, white cheddar, and cellulose. So the cellulose mm. is the wood pulp. Yep. And now cellulose, here's the, like, got to read the whole story, read the article. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a safe additive, and it has an acceptable level from 2 to 4%. Okay. But, but in these cases, that was over double the acceptable level. Uh, so 100% grated Parmesan cheese from Jewel Osco was 8.8% cellulose. And Walmart's great value graded Parmesan, 7.8%. Wow. According, yeah, food fraud. Yeah, totally. Just totally fruit, food fraud. That, that's well, and and uh, so and, and this is uh, this is I, I I wanted to link to this article, or I wanted to I read this article, and I didn't obviously read the whole thing carefully enough. What's what's now is much more clear to me is this is the kind of Parmesan cheese that I no longer eat, which is that you buy that comes already pre graded for you. We we in my house now we uh, only have the fancy Parmesan cheese that you buy that comes that looks like a piece of cheese, which you, you grate yourself over your pasta, which actually we used, did last night. Well, there um, you go. So, yeah, I, I, have, uh, I have not uh, consumed that uh, pre-grated Parmesan cheese um, since, uh, um, well, a long time. Um, so, and uh, yeah, and my, my wife is a real food snob, and, and we, so we only have the, the kind of Parmesan that we grate ourselves. But it doesn't, actually doesn't surprise me that, that this stuff is, I mean, it's, it's disappointing, but not surprising this stuff uh, can, be, can be faked because, my God, yeah, it just seems like an accident waiting to happen. Yeah, it's uh, um, kind of you know, kind of an interesting one. Um, so we don't, we also don't eat. Uh, sorry, I don't eat the uh, pre-grated Parmesan cheese. I just don't really like it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, my kids love it. 
like this, you know, this type of Parmesan cheese would be the, the, the exact ty type that they, um, that they want. But it, like this, this whole idea of, um, food fraud. So there's another thing that, uh, that came out last week, um, that suggested that food fraud, um, globally costs the food industry and consumers $40 billion annually. So, wow. yeah, so I, I'll, I'll send you this and I don't know, again, I don't know where this is all coming from. It's a press release from a group called Safe or safe and PWC and they're developing a tool, uh, with Wageningen Ningen uh, university, uh, on, I think it's Wageningen Ningen. That's what I said. That's what I said. <laughs> um, on, you know, assessing vulnerability. And so, but I mean, it's, it, it, you know, that this, and it's, it's gone all along. It's gone um, on for forever. I mean, we go back, uh, just in recent history to melamine in pet foods, um, horse meat that we've talked about on the podcast. I mean, this is a, it's a big, big deal. Anytime you have food with, you know, where, where your margins are not great and you can um, change the composition of that food and not, uh, you know, for cheaper ingredients and misrepresent them um, and make more money, you've got, uh, you got a lot of vulnerability to, to that for, for ingredients. And so, so this is like, it, it's a, it's one that we've dealt with for a long time and it's different. I mean, this is your intentional, um, changes to the food. So it's really hard, I think, to catch without sampling or seeing it, right? Like this isn't a preventative, preventive measure kind of thing. Well, and, and honestly, the kind of people that are buying and eating this kind of pre-grated Parmesan cheese are probably not cheese snobs to begin with, right? Right. Right. So they're not they're they're not really look they're looking for value. They're not really looking for for quality, right? Or they're looking for acceptable quality and a good value. Absolutely. Um cool. Hey, so hey, oh, oh, go yeah. you go. No, you go. I got oh, it. So um so apparently um I uh, I have uh uh, I might be a little bit of a, a, a star on the internet. Uh, there was a, uh, I don't know if you, if you saw this, uh, but there was a, a documentary that was, that recently came out called, uh, expired food waste in America. And, uh, it's a, it's a pretty good video. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a documentary, but it's a very short documentary. It's only a couple of minutes long and, um, it, uh, it actually, um, features me in part. So, um, I really, uh, uh enjoyed working with the, the people. That, that made it. It was it was a uh, um, some folks from the Harvard uh, Food Law and Policy Clinic, as well as uh, some others. Um, and it was just uh, it was it was a, it was a hoot to do. And and they came to Rutgers and they videotaped uh, me talking about um, uh, expiration dates and food waste, and then and they did a whole bunch of other stuff. And it's only it's only a you know it's funny they came to me and they said they were working on a documentary, uh, and it, and then I, I found out in the course of the discussion the documentary was only five minutes long, but it's a really nice piece of video. Um, it's a free to watch on uh, Vimeo, and we'll link to it in the show notes. But uh, did you have a chance to take to take a look at it? By I any have not. I have not. I I saw this floating around a little bit on the interwebs, um, but I haven't. Yeah, I, I've not. I've not watched it yet. Yeah, it, it turned out pretty good. I, I think it was. Uh, you know, they they tried to. They have a particular agenda. 
without a doubt, and they have something that they want to accomplish with this. But um, they're and, and actually, I had a, a phone call with them this week about things that they because they're very interested as the Harvard Food Law and Policy Clinic. They are actually interested in shaping policy, um, and so that ultimately is their goal. Now that the documentary is out, is try to use the the leverage from that to maybe get some some change to, to food policy. And you know, this has been this whole idea of shelf life dating on food has been something that has been sort of I've been interested in at least peripherally um, for a long time since since starting at Rutgers um, and trying to figure out like what advice do you give people about the dates on your food? What is it? What is you know used before Best Buy? Um, you know where are the where are the dates related to safety and where are they related to quality and how do they get set? And it's something it, that just comes up again and again. Whether I'm working with an entrepreneur who wants to figure out what the shelf life of their food is, or whether I'm trying to provide advice uh, to a consumer or to some consumer facing group that's going to you know, give information. Uh, you can go out um, to various extension websites around the country and find um, information on how long will this last in the refrigerator, including some some stuff that uh, my colleague at, here at Rutgers University, Daryl Minch, has put together. Um, and what you find is you just find numbers that are that are all over the place because, in part, this is uh, it's it's not necessarily science based, and it, actually, to a certain extent. It really is not that it's always food safety related, but it really is a risk management decision, right? And you're and the risk that you're managing is not necessarily the risk of food poisoning, but the risk of providing to your customer a food that is un, of unacceptable quality. So it's uh, anyway, it's a, it's it's been an interesting area, and it was a lot of fun to make the video, and I think it turned out pretty good. Well, I'm gonna I'll, I'll check it out. Yeah, I haven't. Uh... I've been a slacker and not watching my uh, internet uh, documentaries, but I did just scroll through and see a very stately Dr. Donald Schaffer, uh, also uh, hanging out in his in his laboratory in his white coat. Yes, uh, as coat, I always do. As you as you are, as I'm sure you are now. Um, yes, in fact, I am standing in my laboratory with a white coat. I am actually uh, pipetting and diluting uh, foodborne pathogens as we speak. Will you be streaking Whoops. plates? Oh, did you, you just squirted? Oh, oh, get better, better clean that up. Uh, so I'm streaking uh, plates. I'm running the autoclave. I'm, I'm doing it all, Ben. Got it all. Got it all. It's that's good. Um, so uh, it, the the idea about uh, I mean, you're you're right on. I probably do at least one interview a week about expiration dates or, or food waste and quality versus spoilage. Um, it's, it's such a common question, whether it's a radio or magazine or blog or whatever, it's just something that, that, um, continues to garner attention on how, you know, what are the myths? What are the, the, you know, the science-based, um, uh, realities, um, uh, you know, uh, that are there around, uh, around expiration dates and, and such. And, um, you know, we, we did this, uh, study, uh, over, uh, a couple of years ago, looking at food handlers, uh, food handling and risks in food pantries and emergency food settings where there's dry storage and expiration dates are, uh, are, um, an issue. And some, we, we, got, you know, in the in the paper that um, we'll link to in show notes, it's in uh, Journal of Food Protection from I think it was October that it was published in of last year. Um, there's just a couple of lines about this, but we had this kind of Ashley Chaffetz, who is the um, 
uh, doctoral student who's working on this, found some really interesting stuff when she conducted interviews with pantry managers around expiration dates and waste, where um, there was two uh, school of thoughts where um, some managers really, really, really paid attention to those expiration dates and would not provide that food through an emergency um, setting from a, uh, a uh, ethical or moral kind of standpoint of, well, if this food is expired and it's not good enough for someone who has money to buy food, then it really shouldn't be good enough to, to, to provide to somebody who needs food. And uh, the other, uh, and it was like bimodal, like it was, that was half of the population, the other half of the population uh, basically said, I understand that expiration dates are quality related and my job is to get food to people that can't get it. Um, but so there was this like really interesting, like it, it had little to do with this, I mean, zero to do with the safety aspect of it, a little bit to do with the quality, but really it was this like ethical thing that if it's not good enough, then then we shouldn't be handing it out, which which leads to the to you know more food waste issues. Well, right, and in fact, this is this is a topic that I have uh, uh, thought about often, and in fact, um, we're coming up on uh, the next CFP, and which reminds me of uh, something that that happened at the last CFP, which is these emergency guidelines for holding food out of temperature control, which which I worked with a CFP committee to develop, um, and it's it's fascinating. Like, and this and this all of this was brought home. Well, in part, it's related to some work that um, some of my students have been doing. Um, but also it's related to some work that I did for uh, the Restaurant Depot people, which we talked about before. But if you think about it from the perspective of, let's say, a Superstorm Sandy, where you have massive power outages, you have workers out there in the field working to help people, you have convenience stores and supermarkets who have lost power, who, you know, but they're being staffed and there are people out there that need food fr- and, and you have you have these locations that have this food that is expiring, that is going out of temperature control. And how do you handle that? Right. And on the one hand, you can take you can take the view. OK, so this milk has been uh, at above 40 degrees uh, Fahrenheit for more than four hours. Therefore, it should be discarded. Um, on the other hand, you can say, well, yeah, but the temperature is 45 degrees Fahrenheit right now now, right? And so uh, is that really, is that, what is the, what is the ethical decision, right? And, and you're, ba- and it's the same thing with this, uh, with this documentary, you're balancing the idea that you, you don't want to give substandard food to people versus if people, if these people in this situation really need this food, is it more ethical to you know, as long as everybody's clear on on the state of it and the fact that it that it might be past its expiration date or it might have been held out of temperature control for a certain period of time, um, what is the ethical thing to do? And it's not it's not it's not a straightforward answer. Right, right, and it's um, it's a it's probably not a difficult risk calculation, but it provides a difficult risk communication challenge. Yeah, well, and I would say for sure the risk calculation is relatively straightforward, and some of the the, the models that we've developed for pathogen growth can you can you can you can do that fairly in a fairly straightforward way. But yeah, the, but you're right, the communication message becomes a lot more complicated than than, than let's say the, the the science message. Right, right, yeah. It's uh, it's it's a fascinating area. It's one that I think will 
we'll continue to see focus. I think that uh, societal uh, influences like recycling in the in the eight, you know late eighties. Um, this this idea of food waste and um, and reducing food waste is is just becoming a much more important um, discussion point. And when we look at hunger, uh, and and really that's why part of the reason why we did our project in in pantries was because you know I I, I live in a state where I live in a, a a bubble of the part of the state where we have a, you know relatively low hunger compared to some of the eastern parts of our state where um, we're, we're looking at. 15 or 20 percent of individuals who are using emergency food uh, all the time, uh, you know, as, as a main source of, of food, and 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 we were um, we are in a state where that food source is unregulated. Like unless that food is passing through uh, a kitchen that is inspected, it's not food for pay, and so it, it exists outside of all the other protections that we have, and we have good, you know process from uh the you know sometimes the donating industry on safety um but you know what happens to it once it once it leaves that store or that restaurant and how it's handled was something that we were really interested in uh in looking into and how decisions are made and there's a lot you know we learned we learned a lot but there's a bunch of stuff to um to investigate further and, and create some some messages and, and tools to, to actually both in, you know impact the safety and reduce the waste uh, aspect of, of food you know we uh, I don't know the like full correct terminology but um, or the or the data around it but but you know the hunger issue that we have in the United States is not about the lack of food it's a it's an access um, issue and if and um, from the the literature on choice um, you know, it's really easy to keep around canned food, but the quality of canned food compared to fresh produ- produce or other products in pantries, which people prefer because of taste issues, that becomes a um, an issue as well. So it's, I'm, you know, I'm I'm glad you're involved uh, with the with the expired documentary. It's an area that that I've always, you know, I feel I feel passionate about and trying to figure out the the best ways and safest ways to to, to get food to people that need it. Yeah, and, and this is something we've talked about before too. Uh, in, in that uh, I work with uh, Deb Palmer uh, at Rutgers University, who works with that clientele and and trying to get help her, uh, you know, give give her clientele good, accurate information because they're going to go ahead and, and eat uh, this stuff anyway, right? So, and you talked about um, you know food that hasn't passed through a kitchen, um, an inspected kitchen. What about food that has passed through an inspected kitchen where? There was no active managerial control, and, and and one of the things that you wanted to talk about was this yes. uh, uh, North Knoxville manager who was apparently unaware of food safety requirements. And I have to read this. Uh, the inspector uh, writes that she watched the cook place raw hamburgers on the grill and then began touching several utensils without washing his hands first. While preparing a sandwich, the cook also touched a ready-to-ear sandwich with his bare hands without washing his hands first. A ready-to-ear sandwich? Is, is that a North Carolina thing? I think that's a Tennessee thing. Thing. Tennessee That's, thing. Yeah, it's a western way western North Carolina thing. Yeah, a ready to eat sandwich. Is that is that not a thing in in New Jersey or do you only have ready to eat sandwiches there? Just ready to eat in New Jersey, yeah. We have ready to listen to, ready to see, uh ready to touch, 
uh, and ready to eat. And uh, sometimes people who are ready to listen to a sandwich, they refer to it as a ready to ear sandwich. How about that? Uh, uh, but yeah, so active managerial control, though. Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I think this, just bringing it back to that emergency food and donated food, I think that there's probably, and again, this is not something we've investigated. It's just my, um, my, my guess on experience that there, it's, it's almost like two tiered levels of food. The stuff that's going to get donated has a different, uh, it's, not paid the same amount of attention to as food that will be sold commercially um, because of the quality issues. And it's got little to do with the safety, although that may impact the safety um, of it. So what, you know, for, for us in, in and I, you know, going back to your CFP um, document, um, you know, that food that, that is going to be discarded that gets donated it could be under active managerial control up until the point where someone makes a, the decision, okay, we're going to donate this. Let's call the soup kitchen or food pantry up to come pick it up or we'll go drop it off. And then the transport, the receiving, the storage, the reheating, all of that stuff that might happen on site on the emergency side, which is now outside of that active managerial control in the first, you know, from the, from the producing kitchen is where, where I think things, at least in our study, fall apart, fell apart a little bit. Um, this one, you know, coming back to this Tennessee case, what really was like my favorite part of this was, um, the inspector reports food temperatures were off. Chili was found at 120 degrees, mashed potatoes at 105 degrees, um, and 135 degrees above is required temperature to slow the growth of bacteria. Um, and that the uh, inspector writes, quote, there was no managerial control. And the manager was, quote, unaware of food safety requirements. So she recommended that the manager attend the county's free food safety class, which is held every month. I think that's a good idea. I think it's a good idea. We So we, like... I don't know what the we'll have to look up what the law is in in Tennessee, but we re require someone to have a certified food protection manager certificate on site at all times that the business is in operation, and and require means it's in the code, and if they're not there, they lose two points. So yeah, so I mean the penalty is maybe not steep. Um, but, uh, but it is, you know, it's, it's a requirement to be in compliance with the code. What, how does that work in, in New Jersey? Cause I know you have like, you're a home States, a home rule state. Does that like, do you have a food code that gets implemented differently across your different municipalities or townships? Well, the, or? the code is the same. The implementation may be different, right? So the, the, the way it works with home rule is it's really up to the individual municipality to, to decide how to interpret and enforce the code. And they can ask the state for advice, uh, but, it, but it's really a bottom-up uh, process. But, but I want to I talk about this. I got a, got a couple of points on this, on this issue of active uh, managerial control. And I want to, we talked before, 
before about the uh, I sh- one of the things that I shared with my burn seminar student was the, the the cooling paper that I recently published and and the the finding from that which which just was was in in retrospect probably not surprising to me but the 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 most important thing that you can do in a restaurant the thing that was most most correlated with cooling food in compliance with the code was having that food's temperature being actively monitored by workers. Now, I know that's not the same as active managerial control, but the idea that by simply monitoring something, that's going to improve compliance. And then the other thing that I want to talk about with respect to active managerial control, one of the things that we changed recently um, with the work that we do inspecting Rutgers University dining halls is we added a question regarding active managerial control. So when the, when the student goes in and does the inspection, they find the manager and they have a list of questions that they can ask the manager, which will indicate whether that manager understands food safety, right? So, so to demonstrate active managerial control. And, and, and I, we've, we now have an entire year's worth of data. And the, the, the most important, the single most, the only thing that we ever trip them up on is that they, uh, that they don't have a thermometer, on them, right, and and that they're not monitoring temperatures, and so uh, I, to me, I find that that fascinating. That that for the most part, our managers do a great job of ensuring that they have active managerial control, except when it uh, comes. To, and again, and and again, it's not like they never have this, right? It's right. just that, that, this that is the like, most likely you know, one. Yeah. The only when it when they screw up, and 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 they they don't they 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 succeed. Let's say ninety percent of the time, but when they screw up, that ten percent when they screw up, it's because they don't have a thermometer on them. Which to me is is well, number one, it's rewarding that they do such a good job, and number two, fascinating that uh, uh, that that's what that's where they get tripped up. Huh? Yeah. And, and so what? Um, you don't have it in front of you, but what percentage of the of the non-compliance, like how often is that the case that they don't have the thermometer? Um, I, I, like I said, I think it's a, it's relatively small. If you give me five minutes, I can yeah, I can right. it up for you. Um, uh, that's okay. So it, yeah, it's it's one of the things. Uh, like in going back to the to the burger. Uh, ordering hamburgers, risk communication thing that uh, you know project that, that we completed um, in a, in a couple of the qualitative instances and in anecdotally from as uh, you know as, as I've ordered uh, you know burgers to cook to a specific temperature, um, there is often this like weird conversation of yeah I don't know if the kitchen has a thermometer or no we don't have a thermometer we just go by color all that you know this this weird like servers not really knowing how or whether those thermometers are there and then not communicating with the uh, with the kitchen or in certain cases like there's a place here that I do order a burger often from where the, I ask for it cooked to 155 degrees um, and then I they're like oh yeah that's no problem people order that all the time and so it's it's interesting to you know on the thermometer, thing that they're required to have and not knowing whether the kitchen actually has one. 
Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's 93 percent of the time, 93 percent of the time they answer the question correctly. And then the other seven percent, um, you know, again, I'll just read to you what what the inspection forms say. Asked if workers were provided with thermometers. No worker had a thermometer. Asked whether workers were provided with thermometers. Only the chefs had thermometers. Workers on the line didn't have it. Uh, the cook at the grilled chicken station didn't have a thermometer. The cooks at the deli didn't have a thermometer. Uh, you know, again, uh, again, it's just it's just it's cooks without thermometers you know, and this, this should just be part of the uniform, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's, yeah, it's the, the thing that you need. It's a tool. Okay. I just sent you something that I have a question about. Sure. So I will read, this is a, um, a recipe from, uh, Sam Sifton, who you might know from, uh, the New York times is a food writer for the New York times. And he has a recipe for off oven roast beef. You know about this? You ever heard I'm, about this? I think I'm going to not like this. So step one, remove roast from refrigerator. Okay, good. It started out in the refrigerator. Preheat oven to 500 degrees. Step two, in a small bowl, mix together salt, pepper, garlic, olive oil, and red pepper flakes to create kind of a paste. Rub this all over the roast. Place beef in a roasting pan or cast iron skillet, fat side up, put into oven. Cook undisturbed for five minutes per pound at 500 degrees. Then step three, the easiest step, turn off oven. Do not open oven door. Leave roast to continue cooking undisturbed for two hours. Step four, after two hours, remove roast from oven, slice and serve, and then eat it uh, ideally uh, with some uh, watercress salad and some skillet fried potatoes. So, oh, and, a, and a, don't forget the small terrine of Henry Bain sauce, whatever that is. I don't know what that is either. <laughs> I mean, so... Okay, let's let's do a little. Um, what well, here are the things we don't know. What temperature does that roast get to as we cook it at five hundred degrees for five minutes per pound? And we don't know that for a bunch of reasons because we don't know how big the roast is. That's going to impact what temperature it gets to. Um, we don't know. Um, we like it doesn't talk about a thermometer at all. Uh, and then. I guess this next part of let's turn off the oven and let's look at the temperature profile as it cools over two hours in this unopened oven door. And I don't know. I mean, really, I don't know a whole lot about whether this is a safe practice or not. It sounds like it might not be, but we can really only answer this with using some data loggers and actually monitoring the temperature. The time factor is not very long, right? It's not like leave your oven door closed and leave it in there for five hours or six hours. Um, but two hours at um, 110 uh, Fahrenheit, is that, do we have a perforingens potential risk there? May I guess maybe, right? So yeah. Um, so anyway, what are, your, what are your thoughts on this? I, I don't like it. It doesn't sound safe to me. Um, if you and it's so it sounds like this is a a, a way to get uh, rare roast beef, which some people like. And if you look at the the photograph, it, it does show kind of a rare ish, a bit bloody ish roast beef. And I guess my point is to, to people that might want a rare roast beef, um, investigate sous vide, because apparently that's a really good way yeah. to, to do this, right? You cook it, you cook it, uh, appropriately, you know, at a low temperature for a very long period of time, following the recommendations, you know, USDA, FSIS, Appendix A, or a, a, other 
appropriate guidelines and then sear the outside. That if that if you like rare roast beef, investigate sous vide. I do I cannot recommend this. It just does not sound safe. A hundred yeah. I mean if you want really roast beef, let's go hundred and thirty degrees Fahrenheit for hundred and twenty one minutes. Exactly. And and you get your uh, your rare roast beef. I don't know. So here's my why I wanted to ask you about it is I don't know. And I what mm-hmm. I what I want to do and what 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 I think we're going to do in you know maybe not today but we're going to order some um you know we have data loggers but we don't have a temperature probe that I think will withstand 500 degrees um cuz the one that we have I've got like I have to stick the thermo like anyway I think it'll melt the LCD um screen on it so I need some other way to monitor this like basically an eye grill um uh, and so I got to get some of those, but I'm going to look, I want to look at what the temperature profile is before, mm-hmm. before we really get into what the, what the risk is. I agree though. It sounds like a really bad idea. Well, and, and there is, there is one piece of data. If you look at the comments on the article, um, somebody says, um, uh, I checked my three pound roast at 75 minutes and it was right on 140, 145. Oh. So that is at least a data point or a datum there point. There you go. That's and that is surprising to me. That seems a lot higher than I would have thought. Seventy-five minutes, like so. If that's the case, and this is the 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 time te- time temperature, we're gonna look at now. That'll take care of our our salmonella risks. If if it's like what, what did they say, one forty-five? Uh, yes. So one forty-five for four minutes is gonna give us seven log uh, reduction of salmonella. But yeah, see now, and here, so yeah, so somebody says have ruined two roasts now using this recipe, both to overcooking. Took it out a half hour earlier than recommended the second time, and was still medium in the middle. Um, yeah, so this, so and this person says, uh, yeah, I see, I, yeah, I don't know. It's just uh, this, just we need we need more data, and we do. Yeah, I, I so maybe yeah, maybe this maybe this is. Uh, Oh, and this one's – we like our roast beef rare, so I left it in the oven for one hour instead of two. Oh, good job. So, I mean, I don't – maybe based on this anecdotal evidence from these comments, this is not going to undercook your roast beef. But I I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical. It's not – it's not – the bottom line is it's not a best practice. We have thermometers. We can we can solve this problem scientifically. We, we can. We can. Um, it, yeah. So anyway, I wanna I'm gonna I'm gonna look at it and see if it's uh, how how realistic it is, <laughs> uh, and from a safety standpoint. But I came across I, I so um, Katrina who works for me sent it to me yesterday uh, with a message saying this looks sketchy. What do you think about it? And I was like I don't know. So I'll I'll ask Don. Yeah. Question questionable food safety is what the uh, subject line of my uh, email from her was. Hmm. Well, well, hey, um, I think we uh, we hit all the stuff I wanted to talk about today. We didn't talk about hepatitis A. Ah, uh, we didn't, but it's uh, I don't know. You want to talk about hepatitis A? There's two hepatitis A things we could talk about. One is um, your your state, your home state. Uh, uh, one town uh, had this uh, hepatitis A outbreak uh, back in 2014 at Rose's Restaurant and Catering. Have you been there before? No, I have not. It's in Hamilton. You know where that is? Hamilton, New Jersey. I do. I do. Well, they got a they got this place roses. And this I remember this outbreak because it was kind of notable in in my world. Um there was a uh hepatitis A um positive uh food handler and then there was uh, a vaccination um 
process where, you know, the health department said line up and come get your IgG shot. And uh, then following that, about a month and a half later, uh, two individuals who had eaten at Rosa's came, became ill uh, with hepatitis A. And both of those individuals said that they had seen the vaccination, um, you know, come get your shot uh, messages, but didn't think that they were really at risk and decided that they would not make that risk management decision. Uh, or made a you know a risk management decision that was to not get the shot, and both came down with uh, with hepatitis A, um, which was really like I mean it's not that was that's fairly unique. Anyway, following that outbreak, uh, Hamilton, New Jersey decided that they would start posting uh, inspection uh, results online, uh, and um, they uh, um, now have uh, a searchable database uh, website with uh, 500 restaurants and retail shops that you can take a look at. Well, that's a good thing. It is a good thing. Um, but I just don't, I still don't understand. I mean, we've talked about this, but how come not every place in the entire world puts their inspection you know, results online? I mean, is, are we just like we're, we've had this discussion for like 15 years now? Like, shouldn't everyone just be doing it? Well, and again, I would say my perspective from being from a home rule state is there's no way that we could do that in New Jersey. It would be up to each municipality to decide to do it. Right. So, but shouldn't they um, just be doing it? Like, yeah. The, why, why wouldn't they be doing why it, right? Wouldn't they? Well, except that it, it takes time and money. It's, gar- it's garbage. Yeah. But but yeah but 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 I mean at some point I think it's going to flip and it will just become standard that this is how we do things and the people that aren't doing it will will have to get on board but but yeah. Well, there you go, there you go. Um, cool. Well, that's uh, that's all I got. That's all I got for you. You don't, you don't want to talk about uh, progress towards eliminating hepatitis A disease oh, in the United States? I forgot about that one. Yes, I do. <laughs> I thought that's what you wanted to talk about. No, are we making Ben? Are we making progress? What does what does the CDC have to say about this? Well, let me tell you what they have to say, Ben. They me. say that uh, hepatitis A disease proportionally uh, affects adolescents and young adults. Uh, for continued progress to be made towards elimination of hepatitis A in the United States, additional strategies are needed. Um, uh, to pre- pre- prevent hepatitis A infection amongst an emerging population of susceptible adults. Notably, HIV infections remain endemic in much of the world, contributing to U.S. cases through international travel and the global food economy. Right. And um, there's been – so there has been uh, a, uh, a change. There's been progress. There's been declines in rates of hepatitis A virus disease um, that have been most striking by racial ethnic group. Um, so from 1990 to 97 to 2003, the rate of, uh, uh, hepatitis A among Native Americans and Hispanics has decreased by 98.8%. Wow. And 86.4%. Really it is. It That's is. a lot of percent. It is a lot of percent. That's, uh, it's down, it's down quite a bit. Um, and by 2011, the national rates of HIV disease among all groups had declined to less than one case per 100,000, virtually eliminating absolute disparities among uh, racial ethnic groups because there had been a lot of focus in uh, specific groups. But um, in 2011, there were 1,400 cases of HIV, or of HAV, and 2012, 1,500, which was the first increase since 1995. Hmm. Um, which was when the vaccine became available. Um, So, yeah, I mean, 
there there has been progress, uh, and uh, the question is, will it be eliminated? Uh, I don't think so. Right? Like, were we ever going to eliminate it, Don? Well, probably not, but we certainly can manage it, and it looks like there are good strategies for managing it, and it looks like, uh, you know, if you follow those strategies, it kind of works. Yeah, look, so take a look at this paper, and we'll link to it in um, in uh, show notes. Look at the look at figure one and figure two. Um, it's down near the bottom. Of the, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's it, like it's it's getting low. I mean, at one point in the seventies, you're looking at almost thirty cases uh, per uh, um, hundred thousand population, and now we're down below one. Yeah, it's 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 really good. I mean, I wish we were making as good progress against other foodborne diseases. Not, not that all hepatitis A is foodborne, but but yeah, wow. Uh, but um, we got a vaccine, right? Like yeah, that's, right. That's, that's right. the key that's, here. Yeah, uh, or it see, definitely seems to be the the key. Um, in looking again at Figure One, uh, the vaccine was first recommended in 1995, and we went from uh, in the U.S. around uh, 12 cases per 100,000 to less than one in, yep. in 20 years uh, yep. vaccine relate. Now, there have obviously been other strategies to that point, but that has put us down really as close to as close to zero, approaching zero as possible. Indeed. Um, cool. So there's the there's hepatitis A uh, safety hour for us. Um, that's good. I think that's a show now. I think it's a show. I think it's I, I wasn't uh, uh, I wasn't trying to finish the show. I just wanted to make sure that we were uh, um, we were we were eye, eyeing the end, <laughs> and we're here. We're at the end. We're at the end of a show. This is food safety talk. See how I'm, I'm slow talking right now because I have to figure out what the number is. Mm-hmm. Food safety talk next, which is what we uh, call this uh, one. But I can add up that this is uh, number ninety five. Ooh, and and Don, Ben, I I I want. I want everyone to know that uh, we posted 87. I did. I've edited 89. Ooh. I've edited 91. Ooh, pressure's on me. I'm going to do 93 next. Oh, man. Look at you go. I'm going. I'm, I've, I'm in a groove. We're going to get them done. In fact, you know what I might do for you, Don? What's that? I might go. If it, we'll, see, we'll see how you do on. I think you've got 88 almost ready to go. Yep. Uh, I might even do 90 for you. Whoa. And then we're going to go. Um, it, as uh, in chronological order, 88, 89, 90, 91. Boom, 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 boom. Let's get them out there. Our fans will be so happy. Oh, they will. Dan, Dan Latendra, Dan Latender, <laughs> Dan the goaltender, uh, who we know from the internet, who is uh, really, I think, maybe our biggest fan. Um, every time he flies, he wants to listen to us, and uh, he's and he flies a lot, Ben. I don't know if you know this. He buy he flies a lot. I do, I do. I sent him a little Valentine's note on the internet. Did you see that? No. It said, uh, check your iTunes feed. Oh, I did see that. Yes, and he was excited about that. Um, and then he then said, uh, this veil of threat uh, to us on maybe I found a new and better food safety podcast. Yeah, like, that that hurt me. Yeah, maybe yeah. we'll listen. It to cut it. me deep. I might listen to it. <laughs> uh, hey, if there's a better food safety podcast out there, I want to listen to it too. But there's not. There's. It's true. Exactly. <laughs> um. So uh, that's uh, episode uh, number ninety fiver. And uh, Don, I'm going to talk to you later. This has been great. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye. 
Cool, cool, cool. Oh, have you looked at uh, iTunes? This is my favorite part where I go no. see if anybody's commented on us. On plane fee, let's take a look here. I'm gonna, that's me talking through my teeth without moving my lips. This is the best part of the show. I know. It's pretty awesome. Uh, click on it. Go there. Go to that. I don't know. It's like I can't even figure out how to use iTunes today. I, iTunes is such a mess. Oh. It really is. Oh, I started playing it. it. Yeah, I just don't know. Where is it? I see that it's here, that it exists. Go to show in the iTunes store. That's what I want. There we go. Ratings. We're up to 20. We are. Do you know we've got, like, clean lyrics? Do we? We have a new sticker. Oh, my gosh. We got people. Gro- Grocery Dan. I think that's... Grocery Dan. I I think that this is uh, Dan LaTonder. Donovan's How about that? podcast is funny and informative. I've been listening for almost two years now, and I learned something new on every podcast. Oh. Whether you're a seasoned veteran or new to the food safety world, food safety talk is a must listen to. Keep oh. up the great work, guys. Don't forget to remind Ben how good the Maple Leafs are. <laughs> Thanks, Dan Latonder. We don't know. We don't know if that was Dan Latonder. That's just a grocery Dan. Grocery Dan. Grocery Dan. As he likes to be known. I think we. I might have read this one um, before. Maybe not. I think so. From Lumello, um, who said, I just wrote a Bible and my review didn't go. But again, this is a perfect way for you to update and open your mind in food safety. They are fun, smart, and with the perfect sarcasm that make me laugh loud when I'm driving or jogging listening to them. I'm a veterinarian who works in this area and love to discover them here to learning in a fun way. Thank you, Ben and Don, for the work well done. And that is someone who calls us delightful from Lumello7. Well, thank you, Lumello7. That was really nice. I love this. It makes it feel good. No one's really given us a bad review. And I dread, I dread it. Because if it happens, yeah, it's coming. Well, we get, we did get a bad review at the very beginning when when uh, Doug told us that uh, we sucked. But... <laughs> we laughed too much. <laughs> Whatever, I take that. I like that. We did. <laughs> at least he didn't put it on iTunes. It's true. We people did. Um, we did. We're kind of upset at us over our raw milk things. Although I don't think they actually listened to it. I think they no. read the barf blog post of the show notes and decided yes. that we were awful people for yes. su- suggesting raw milk, Amsterdam, Amsterdam. Right. Uh, um, all right. Food safety. Do you ever just Google it? Google food safety talk. Yeah. See what people yeah. are saying about it. Oh no. Yeah. And no one's ever saying anything about it, <laughs> but, <laughs> but like on, on podcast chart, we exist there. I don't know what that is. I don't even know what that is. But you can see that you can it links directly to us. Huh. And then there's uh, then there's Chipotle closes for food safety talk. That's different. <laughs> they closed for us. Yeah, they closed for all. Oh. I didn't even. We did say some bad stuff about them. I didn't. I didn't want them to close though. I know. Who? It's crazy. Oh, weird. Podbean. Do you know about Podbean? I don't. We have 226 followers on Podbean. How could that be? That's more than that's amazing. What does that mean though, right? Like does that I don't mean? know, but I'm happy with it. I'm yeah. I'll count those numbers. Way to go, impact. Yeah. People are listening to us on the pod bean. 
Uh, walk the food safety talk with jerky police. Huff, we're on Huff Duffer. Uh, yeah, it just posts our things. Nothing new. Nothing exciting. Um, yeah. Well, those were some nice reviews. That was nice. Yeah, that was good. Um, how? Look at this on the Twitter. How prepared is your company to comply with FISMA regulations, Don? Um, I think we're pretty prepared. My company's not prepared at all. Also, <laughs> also, I don't have a company. <laughs> so, so those two is like that is probably more of a reason why we're not we're not prepared. Um, so, first job get a company. Second yeah, job prepare for business. Exactly. Yeah. Check. 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 Uh, I was going to tell you something else on the uh, in the after dark here. I wish I had made a note about it. Something else that I watched that I thought of you. Oh. No, I might have actually told you this, though, in the last one. Um, yeah. I watched the Lemmy documentary. Oh, okay, yes. You told me about it, and then I yes. downloaded and watched it. It was phenomenal. It's so good. I mean, and, I'm, and I've said this before, and I will continue to say it. Like, I, I'm not, like, a super huge fan of the music, but I am such a fan of the guy. Because this is a guy that is just unapologetically himself. I mean, it's the same reason why I'm, I'm just you know, really happy that Louis C.K. is doing the stuff that he's doing. It's like, here's a guy who's just found out what his job in the world is, and he's just going to do that 100%, you know? Yes, yeah, and, and he's he's just like, that's who he is, and he's he is rock and roll, and it was, like, and I actually didn't know until he, like, I knew who he was, I knew he existed, I know, same thing, Ace of Spades, and I know Motorhead is a band, but I didn't realize sort of the force that is Lemmy within the hard rock, heavy metal world until I watched the the documentary. Like right. just all the people that were interviewed and all the stories. And then it opens up. I don't know if you told me this, but I mean, just the opening scene of him cutting up potatoes and making homemade French fries. In his in his in his crazy apartment. Yes. Amazing, right? Like yes. that was it was it was so it was so so good. Um, just, just watching, watching that. Oh, the other thing that I, so I, you, I don't think that like, if you want to get into this, um, uh, series, it's going to be you because I don't think Chris will like it, but breaking bad, we, we watched it and finished it mm -hmm. and it was great. But I'm t the background is that, you know, okay, watch that, that, watch that show, but then watch better call Saul because better call Saul is amazing. It is better than breaking bad. And it is a. Um, it, it is part of the Breaking Bad universe, and it occurs in Albuquerque. And better call it, Saul Goodman is a character in Breaking Bad, and this is the oh, story okay. of how he becomes. So it's like a spinoff. It is a spinoff, and it is like so. Danny and I have watched. We just watched the first season, like in three days. It's only ten episodes, but I mean, by episode three, we both kind of said to each other, "This is better than Breaking Bad." Like it's wow. it's a it's really really good. Vince Gilligan, the guy who writes um, both of those shows, is is a is a great writer. Um, I also read that uh, David Simon has a new project. Did you know that? I don't know who that. Oh, oh. Uh, uh, from The Wire. Yeah, David Simon from The Wire. Ah. he's got a thing. Um, what is it? Uh, where is it? Where is it? Um. Uh, Show me a hero. No, not show me a hero. There it is. The Deuce. The Deuce. It is a porn <laughs> drama set and produced in around Times Square in New York. Um, 
and it uh, is picked up the series in 2016. It's going to be on HBO. Huh. But they haven't confirmed it. But it's apparently phenomenal. Like, I read something about it. It tells the story of legalization and the ensuing rise of the porn industry in New York beginning in the 1970s. Huh. Very cool. Yeah, it sounds it sounds fa- fascinating. Well, the the thing the thing that we have been watching lately is a a show called London Spy, mm. which is again it's a British uh, thing, British crime thing, but it is uh, really weird, and we're uh, a bunch of episodes in, and we still really don't know what's going on. Um, but it's uh, it's it's. It's pretty good. So awesome. And is that uh, on, are you watching that on the iTunes or on Acorn? Um, I think it's on BBC America. Oh, cool. Good. Maybe. Nice. So nice. yeah. Nice. All right. Well, there you go. And we, I have not, uh, we haven't gotten back into the new Downton Abbey or the relatively mm. new Downton Abbey. We're just not there yet. I don't know. It's not something we've we focused on. We'll get to it. Uh, yeah. Uh, right. What are we what, uh, speaking of other period piece the things we're watching? We're watching um, Mercy Street. Is that right? Mm. Is that a thing? Mercy Street, Mercy something, Mercy Hospital. It's about a hospital. Yeah, in in the Civil War in in Virginia. Ooh. Yeah, I think it's called Mercy Street. Um, I'd watch that. Yeah, Mercy Street PBS original series. Yep, that's it. Uh, it's it's set. Uh, it's got the guy from. Um, uh, whatchamacallit, um, How I Met Your Mother. Okay. Yep. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's good. I, it's not, it's, Kristen's more into it than I am. It's a little bit, uh, it's a, you know, it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit too graphic for me and, and not all the characters grab me, but it's, it's, it's very interesting. So it's uh, yeah, if you like civil war era stuff, if you like medical stuff where they're cutting people's legs off <laughs> with, uh, yeah. because of gangrene, <clears throat> um, yeah, you you might like this. So, I think I I think I might. I will check that out. Cool, cool, cool. Well, hey, I think that's a, that's a show. I think that's a show, and that's uh, and Including that's an after, the after dark. dark. Yeah, it's like a it's a it's a double bonus show. Um, but so I do think we should do a show where you bring your your kids your kids your students uh, observations. Like, did you collect them? You yeah. Them? Well, yeah, you know, it. I'm so clever, right? Because I'm all about the internet. Um, I uh, basically made. I didn't. I didn't trust them to do it themselves and turn it in. Yeah. So I basically made a Google Doc, uh, Google Form, and I said, "Look, every day, click this link and fill this out." Oh, perfect. Okay. So I've got it. All comes to me automatically. That sounds awesome. And then I just downloaded every every class period and put it into convert it from Google spreadsheet to Excel so I can actually do something with it and print it out and, and, and take a hard copy to class. But yeah, it's, I, it's, it's, uh, it's all being, uh, collated as we, uh, as we speak. Awesome. Sweet. Okay. Well, I'll, yeah. I want to, I'll take a look at that and we'll talk about it. Yeah. Well, yeah, let's wait till the end of, uh, the class yeah. and then maybe I'll send the whole thing to you and then you can, you can decide which ones you want to talk about or something. That sounds awesome. Okay, cool. Cool. All right. Well, uh, I'll talk to you later. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye.